chapter 4, I'll be starting at verse 1. Why don't you go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. We have a few verses here, and so we'll go ahead and read them. Verses 1 through 7. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, and he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Father, we just lift up this section of Scripture, and we pray, Father, that you would just show us the elements of our salvation, Lord, that are so necessary. Also, Father, may we stay connected with first love, that day when we first were saved and the excitement of it all. So just bless us in our Christian life as we study your section of Scripture tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. <coughs> so the Apostle John, what he's been doing in this Gospel, he's been laying some very important foundations. If you remember, every Gospel has a point in how they present Christ. And John, he's presenting Jesus Christ as God. He's chosen to focus upon the deity of Christ. And so he's laying these foundations of Jesus' ministry, and he's going to spend the rest of the gospel building upon them. And so in chapter 1, we saw Jesus Christ as God incarnate, God in the flesh. He's Messiah, whom the Old Testament prophets had talked about and now is here. In chapter 2, we saw how there's a great change that is going on, an upheaval in the Jewish religion and in the Jewish mindset. We saw that traditional religion and religious systems were now going to be replaced with a relationship with God. Just as surely as it happened back then, it happened in my life. I was a traditional religious, and I thought that's why I was getting into heaven until I realized a relationship with Jesus Christ. Before, it was kind of hope I get into heaven through this, this religion that I participate in and that hour that I spend every week. But now I know that I am going to be with the Lord because I am sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so for this to be accomplished, a complete change would need to happen in one's life. We saw in John chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, but Jesus did not commit himself to them, speaking of the crowd, because he knew all men. And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. What was it that resided within mankind that Christ could clearly see? And again, this is all men, because we're told in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Jesus is understanding. He's the new sensation. He's doing healings and these amazing miracles. And the crowds are starting to come, but not everybody's coming with a pure heart. It's why Jesus did not receive them all, because he understood the impure motives that can reside in the hearts of mankind. There is one who can be held up as the standard for holiness, and only one, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, they attempted, as we saw in chapter 3, it's as if they presented their best case scenario, and we've been looking at his life and the ministry from Christ to him for the last couple of weeks, this man Nicodemus. Nicodemus, well, if you're going to present a man as far as his own righteousness, he was the best case scenario. He was a powerful man. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was well-educated. He was a religious leader. But 
even he fell short of the glory of God. Jesus could see what was in him because he could see what was in all man. And so what did Jesus tell him? You, Nick, you, you need to be born again. And then that's when we developed all of chapter 3. And really what it all boils down to, verse 36, and it's what we need to consider as well. He, and then I'm in chapter 3 still. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. So we can go through all of these religious debates, all these denominational differences, all of these things that we can so waste our time in these useless arguments, and really it all boils down to verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. In my religious ignorance, even though I was going to church every single day, or not every single day, I wasn't doing that, that's a lie. <laughs> every single week. <laughs> even though I was going to church every single week, I didn't know the Son. I didn't know why you needed to know the Son. I knew who the Son was. I never spent enough time to figure it out. And so I didn't come to Him. But really what the whole Bible and definitely all the Gospels are boiling down to is verse 36. And we need to see that. And that's what the Lord and Apostle John and what he is writing is going to start expanding upon. So in these things, the perspective of how to be right with God is changing from man's viewpoint and is being fulfilled according to God's plan, according to God's desire. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, but if the ministry of death, now when he speaks of the ministry of death, he's making a point and he's using the law for that. Because what did the law do? The law showed you that you were a sinner. Now, for the past couple of years, Thursday nights, we looked at Deuteronomy, we looked at Leviticus and Numbers. Well, actually, reverse way around. We looked at Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But what we saw was, was that there was the giving of the law that occurred in, in Exodus, but man can't keep the law. Because man can't keep the law, there's the sacrifice. But the problem with the sacrifice, the best that it's able to do, is to cover sins. But then there was going to come, and that's what everything's all pointed towards. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, so as if they've never existed. And so Paul calls this ministry the ministry of death. It says, written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Now I'm in 2 Corinthians still. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. And so what he's talking about here, and I'll use a term that is used in Hebrews, something better came. And so, Pastor Mike, how do I get into heaven? And if there were two ways, I could say, well, there basically is two ways. There's the Old Testament way. You keep all 613 commandments perfectly without one flaw. You keep your life completely pure you can get into heaven. And you can say, I, I don't know if I can do that. Well, let's see how long you can do that. How long do you think you could go without violating one of those 613 commandments? It's not just the thou shall nots and all of that kinds of things. It's the keeping of the festivals and it's the burning of the proper sacrifice. 
It's being diligent in every one of those things. You'd probably want to know, what, what's the other way? Faith. By grace you've been saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you're imperfect, this man was hung upon the cross. Your sins were placed upon him. He received from the Father. And again, it's just an amazing concept to me. He received, because we so look at what man did to Christ, but it's really the punishment that Christ was receiving from the Father, that he took sins upon him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced the separation from the Father at that moment so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So the Spirit says, if you really want to see something, if you're not so impressed by Nicodemus, I've got a woman at the well for you. See, I, I don't relate well to Nicodemus. Now, I can relate to Nicodemus in how I perceive myself when I lie to myself in my own mind. But I'm not all that powerful. I wasn't really all really that religious. And as far as educated, there's definitely smarter people than me. But now you've got this woman at the well. And as I look at her life, I can see a reflection of my life. I was aware of religion. I even considered myself to be religious to a point, but I was lost in my sins and my trespasses. Just as surely as she is committing adultery, even at that moment, in essence, I was doing the same. But now the point to be made, because again, you can probably make an argument if you're ignorant of the Scriptures, somebody like Nicodemus would be worthy of becoming born again. Well, really the point to be proved through the woman at the well It is seen in in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Yet while I was still a sinner, while I had no heart for God or the things of the Lord, Jesus Christ not only died for me, but Jesus Christ, just as surely as he's doing with this woman of the well, he pursued me. Now think back at your life. You be exhibit A. You just think this out in your own life. Was it you who pursued Christ, or was it Christ who pursued you? I know I wasn't pursuing Christ. Now, there was a time in my religiosity that I knew something was missing, but I wasn't going and looking. I, I, I was convicted, and, but not enough to motivate me to go check anything else out. But then Christ entered my life. Now, he had been knocking on the door for quite a while, but there came that time, yet while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me, And that death was revealed to me, and that's what really made all the difference. So truly understand what's going on, to to truly understand what's going on here, we need to see the contrast and the similarities between Nicodemus and this woman. Look at the contrast. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. A Samaritan? Well, they were just maybe a notch above, maybe a notch below a dog back in that culture, and a dog was not looked upon very favorably. Let's see, a Samaritan, they were part of the northern kingdom when there was the split during the days of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. There was, after a few hundred years of that split, they were taken off into Assyrian captivity. Well, God had restored some of them, and they came back to the land, but they couldn't prove their genealogy. And so the the Jews would look upon them and look upon them basically as what they would refer to as half-breeds. You know, people who were Jewish, but also Gentiles, and and there's such close proximity with them, the Jews really didn't want to have anything to do with them. Israel is smaller than California, but just picture California. Most of you know what it looks like. 
Northern California, that would be Galilee. Southern California would be Judea. In the middle, that would be Samaria. And if a Jew was traveling from Galilee to Judah or vice versa, he wouldn't even go through Samaria. He would go over to Nevada. They would go through Nevada, all through the desert, then into the, uh, the region of Galilee or down into the region of Judah through that. And I, I say Nevada, and it's very similar in that that area that is east of Israel is pretty much like the desert that we have here. It's all wilderness. So again, this man was a Jew. She's a Samaritan. He was an educated politician, a powerful man. She was just a commoner. She was just out getting water one day. He was highly moral. She was highly immoral. He had a name of one who conquers the people. It's what Nicodemus means. Her name, we don't have a name. We just call her a woman at the well. He was a man. She was a woman. Women were looked down in the culture. He came at night. He was concerned about his reputation. She came at noon. She didn't have a reputation, or the one she had wasn't all that good. He was seeking, but with her, Christ, as I said, was pursuing her. Christ was seeking her. At the end, the end result we're not real sure with Nicodemus. Again, I built a little bit of a case as he came with Joseph of Arimathea to take the body. More than likely, he became an undercover believer. But as far as her, we're going to see that not only is she going to be born again, but she's also going to go and witness and lead other people to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a woman that after Christ meets her and she receives Jesus as her Lord and Savior, she's out there. And what is she doing? She's bearing fruit. The similarities, again, both were religious. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, one who practiced religion to the T. This woman at the well, she had a general religious knowledge of a lot of half-truths, but she was acting in the flesh and definitely not in the spirit. Neither of them were saved. Both fell short of the glory of God. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said, For I say to you, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and so what he's talking about is not perceived perfection, but honest, heartfelt perfection. God will never settle for less than perfect. The thing about it is, the thing we have going for ourselves, you have been made perfect in the sight of God, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Now, you think of it, blood? Blood doesn't wash anything. How does blood wash anything clean? Well, when it speaks of blood, what it's speaking of is the death of Christ. It was the death of Christ that paid the price for my sins. And now I'm justified justification just a real easy way of remembering it i mention it all the time now you are seen just as if you have never sinned you've sinned but god has divinely chosen because of the blood of christ to see you just as if you've never sinned see if he just saw me or maybe if i just presented myself as perfect Sooner or later, my imperfections are going to rise to the surface and I'll be revealed for who I am. All things are wide open in the sight of God. But as God divinely, supernaturally chooses to see me just as if I have never sinned, there's an assurance to that, there's a release to guilt in that, and I can have confidence in the Lord through that. 
both of these, both Nicodemus and the woman at the well, there was a spiritual emptiness that caused them to seek after truth. God has created us, we're told in the book of Ecclesiastes, with eternity in our hearts. All mankind, even an atheist may not admit it, but they know it, there's a God. Now I can freely say that all humanity knows there's God because once again, we'll see it when we get to John chapter 16, but the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and, uh, and, and justice. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. As he does that, all humanity knows. Now you may hide behind atheism or you may hide behind idolatry or whatever it might be, but the world knows these things. We just bring these things through our witness. We bring them to light. And so they knew. They knew. Well, the benefit they had is, and we still have today, but the light now has entered into the world, and they're able to come into that marvelous light. And so there's Nicodemus. He's seeking out Jesus. She unexpectedly debates the Lord. She's debating the Lord and religious concepts. Again, she's taking her ignorance. Jesus is presenting truth. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except no one can find out the work of God, or the work that God does, from beginning to end. But now, through Christ, this marvelous light has entered in that now we have an understanding. We've got an understanding just as truly as Nicodemus was because Jesus ministered to him. Again, he summed it up in verse 36 of the previous chapter. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And so now there's an understanding to these things. It's just now a matter, am I going to believe these things or am I going to refuse these things? Lastly, both being spiritually lost, we're attempting to make the best of a bad situation. Again, the same that we did. We got connected with some sort of religion or some sort of worldview or belief system that would really numb the conviction and soothe the guilt a little bit. See, if we work hard enough, we can become tired enough or distracted enough that we're going to be able to, well, at least attempt to ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So Nicodemus, he dove into his religious experience. Again, he became a Pharisee, a man who knows the Word of God forward and backward and does it forward and backward. And so he doesn't have time for conviction because he's there busy. He's working for his salvation. And there's the woman at the well. She's chosen ignorance. A lot of us chose that path. She's chosen ignorance. And in the midst of it, she's used the flesh to soothe her spirit. But really, all it's done is it's just caused her to become more convicted. Verse 1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, therefore, therefore is huge here. It ties in, verse 36, that cornerstone verse, with the first three paragraphs in chapter 4. First three paragraphs will encompass verses 1 through 42. So the question could have been asked, if Nicodemus can't be saved by what he's been able to do, how does this born-again thing work? Well, again, we saw last week it all hinges on he who believes and he who does not believe. So the operative question is, do you believe? Do you believe with the expectation of receiving what God has freely offered to you? So therefore, or that being the case, look at the example of belief. If Nicodemus was the best case, 
then this woman is the worst case. And what I mean by is the worst case taken from society. But for me, that turns into the best case because that's the one that I best relate to. So for the next couple of weeks, we should really be able to see ourselves clearly. Yeah, Nicodemus, he tells him you must be born again. Yeah, we must be born again. But as Jesus meets this woman, I can draw parallels to how he has met me. Look at verse 42. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves had heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. This is where it all led to. This woman sees the truth of who Christ is. She can't contain herself. She goes back and tells other people, and it's not just them believing what she said. It's not just them believing what you say. It's them having a desire to hear what Christ says. As we speak the gospel, what are we doing? We're speaking the words of God. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, the Pharisees may have felt that they've pretty much been dealing with John the Baptist, and now here springs somebody else up. He's outside of, he's probably just east of Jerusalem in the wilderness, probably about 30 miles or so east of Jerusalem. So the Pharisees, it wouldn't be a big trip, a good day's journey to go from Jerusalem out to where the baptisms are going on, or at least for the word to come. And so they're understanding once again that this man who's worked miracles is now out at this river baptizing. And so they're wondering what is going on. Now, again, we looked at it last week, and I'll just kind of go into it briefly. Jesus did not baptize, we are here here told in verse 2, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. Baptism does not bring salvation. Now, people will say, well, it was a different dispensation. Now salvation, it's necessary to be attached to baptism. Well, the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Why? Because it's through the gospel that people are saved. In Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48, it says, while Peter was still speaking, he's speaking to the Gentiles, he's speaking to uh, Cornelius and his family. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, Gentiles, who believed, there's that word, relate it back to John chapter 3, verse 36, were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the, in the name of the Lord, Then they asked him to stay a few days. So Jesus has commanded us to be baptized. If you're a born-again believer and you've refused or you've put off being baptized, you're in disobedience to the Lord, but it doesn't mean you weren't saved. Case in point is Cornelius and his family. There they are. They believe. And as they believe, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a picture so that we know the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and that is the proof of uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, That's the proof of salvation. And it's after that proof of salvation that Peter says, now they need to be baptized. And so what did I do? I got saved, and then I got baptized. There's some denominations that the moment you get saved, they drag you in the back and they dunk you in the pool. When we moved in here, there was a uh, Baptist church that was before us, and they had a jacuzzi right there. 
And I thought that's going to be really cool for me during the week, but we ended up tearing it out. But that's okay. That's okay. If you want to see him go from salvation into the water, don't have a problem with that. That's not how we do things, but that's okay. People don't need to do things like we do things. We need to do things how the Bible does things. And baptism, baptism does not bring salvation. We do not get baptized for salvation. We get baptized because of salvation. So Jesus says, says here in verse 3, I'm back in John chapter 4, He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So we know He is now departing from Southern California, if you will. He's going back up to Northern California. Now again, the typical Jewish mindset would be to go by way of Nevada, or in that particular case, go by way of Jordan, or there was another little section there, I think it was called Perea, that you would go through and you would bypass Samaria because the Jew just wouldn't do that. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. He needed. It's one of those divine appointments. It's one of those things that if you sharpen your senses to the Holy Spirit, you'll see a whole new set of things that you need to do. And the priority is not going to be according to your will, but the priority will be according to the will of God. The things that God has called you to do and the places that God is is sending you. Now this word needed is defined as, I looked it up in the lexicon, so just keep in mind, it's taking this word in context, what is being spoken here, but it's defined as necessity established by the counsel and decree of God, especially by that purpose of His which relates to the salvation of men by the intervention of Christ and which is disclosed in the Old Testament prophecies. They're attaching a lot to that word, but since we know how it turned out, it makes perfect sense. There's a divine appointment ahead for the Lord Jesus Christ. Also keep it in mind, Christ sets the standard. Christ sets the standard in so many different ways, but how we are to conduct ourselves in our Christian life. And so what is Jesus' senses sharpened towards? Well, the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is directing Him. So we, I pointed it out last week a little bit. How many times does the Holy Spirit tell you that you need to say something? How many times has He told you you need to go over there and, and talk to that person? How many times has He told you that you need to And it didn't really make sense, whatever it was that he called you that you needed to do, but it was leading of what God had told you to do. And how many of you did it because you knew that the Spirit was telling you that you needed to do it and you saw the glory of God? Maybe it was just through some little comment or maybe it was sharing the gospel, whatever it might have been. Or how many times have you refused and you didn't go and you didn't see really anything because, well, you weren't obedient to the leading of the Lord. So Jesus... He's going from Judah to Galilee, and he's got a divine appointment in this, this city of Sychar. This woman at the well, just imagine this particular day. She probably woke up as she did every other day. It's time to go to the well, and so she gets her pot, and she's walking to the well, the same thing that she does every single day, and going there, and there's a man sitting there. There's probably people sitting there from time to time. Probably wasn't a big deal. She sees that he's a Jew. That's a surprise to her because, again, Jewish men probably didn't travel through there very often. They definitely wouldn't talk to a woman, not a Samaritan woman. But all in all, that day was probably just like any other day. Well, 
Think back to the day of your salvation. I know the day of my salvation. It was a Sunday. It was just like any other day. Matter of fact, I mentioned this before, probably about three hours before I gave my heart to Christ, my wife asked me when I was going to do that. And I told her, I don't need to make an altar call. It was three hours later, I made an altar call. And I gave my heart to Christ. And again, it was just, I was just going about my, my daily life. And that's how it works. Jesus said, as you go, therefore, as you go about your life, go for the purpose of making disciples. Look at verse 1. Therefore, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples. So in actuality, he's fulfilling the Great Commission, or at least given the example of how we are to fulfill the Great Commission. So when he meets man, he meets man by divine appointment. Jesus didn't just run into this woman. Now, I don't know what Jesus knew beforehand and when he knew and all of this stuff. The only thing that it tells us that he knew is that he needed, he needed to go to Samaria. She's up here, Matt. <laughs> Sarah's going, oh, great. He's walking in the middle of church again. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 6 through 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he had made us accepted in the beloved. Looking back in hindsight, I didn't know this at the time, I just knew that God was going to do a work in my life, and I knew that God was going to say, it didn't, from this perspective, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. But before, the perspective of unsaved, before the Lord came into my life, I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting it. I was expecting to live the rest of my life hiding behind my Catholicism and using that as a shield to anybody who would try to share Jesus Christ with me, and I was very effective at it. Verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. There are two times in the Gospel of John that we see the Lord thirsty. I think there's significance not only in his thirst, but in the hour of the day. Because they're both right around the same hour of the day. I think he wants to draw some similarities between these things. It's between the sixth and the ninth hour when Jesus was on the cross that he uttered the words that are seen. Go ahead and turn over to John chapter 19, verse 28. <clears throat> John chapter 19, verse 28. <clears throat> After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus' thirst from the cross believed that it existed there for two reasons. The first reason was to fulfill Scripture. In Psalm 69, verse 21, they also gave me gall for my food, 
and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. But also I believe there was another spiritual reason. Jesus at that time on the cross, just before he died again in other gospels, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing the sinful nature, not his sinful nature, but mankind's sinful nature for the very first time. Again, Jesus Christ is setting a standard, a standard and this great witness that he has given us that we can see and how these things worked out in our lives and will work out in the lives of others. He's pointing us in a direction. So right now, Jesus is upon the cross and he's experiencing all the effects of sins. Now, what is mankind's solution? Well, this gall that they lifted up to them was to dull the pain. And that's what mankind does with good advice, self-help books, religiosity once again. It's to dull the pain. The Spirit convicts the man of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so man is under this conviction and he needs to find some way to relieve himself of it. So he'll take the gall. He'll take the gall again in religion or self-help or relationships or drugs or alcohol or whatever it might be. But really what Jesus is pointing us to here, he's pointing us as sin is upon all of mankind. He's pointing us to God's solution for sin. In Psalm 42 verses 1 and 2, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Notice how the desire for water is increased with thirst. Have you ever been intensely thirsty just, and, and you see water and you just want to dunk your head in there? There's just that, that God-given desire to refresh yourself and to hydrate yourself. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, verses, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who pant hard after righteousness. This being the case, the application, well, I've seen the intensity of the urge to quench thirst. And we are to seek after God the same way. Seek after God. Now, there's Christ upon the cross. I thirst. And what's the only solution? The only solution, and we saw this in Nicodemus, that Jesus had told them when he was born again and told them that it was only through, you must be born of the water, and born of the Spirit. Now, as we saw that, what was the born of the water part? That's the Word of God. And there, what does Jesus need? He needs the solution for sin. He needs the Word of God. They were giving me gall before I was saved, but what did they need? I needed the water of the Word of God. I needed that water, and that's where we're going to go with the woman at the well and that water. And Jesus says, if you take from this well, you're going to thirst again. Because it was just the Old Testament. And the Old Testament had to continually offer the sacrifice. But Jesus said, I'll give you torrents of living water. You'll never thirst again. And again, just as Christ was upon the cross and he took sin upon him and he was thirsty, he had that passionate desire to quench it. It's the same thing with mankind. Mankind just doesn't know where to look. And it's us who need to bring the word and point him to where he needs to go. He was speaking also here, as I thirst, as he's standing before this woman, it's not the water so much at this point, back in John chapter 4, it's now her. See, just as we are to thirst for God's water, the only way that we are even able to do that is because first, God thirsted for you. God thirsted for you. Now, not, not, God didn't just desire you. 
God didn't just want you. There was an intense desire for you. An intense desire. We saw it a couple weeks ago. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It was to that degree that God set aside some of his divine attributes and he came so that you would understand and you would be able to receive. It's why John calls Jesus Christ the word because it's the word that we want. And Christ, he thirsts for us that we would come into his kingdom, that truly we would believe in the son and have everlasting life. Therefore, God thirsts for you so that you may believe. This thirst is to the degree that he would empty himself of glory and he would take your sin upon himself. And so, if you're in Nicodemus, you need to be born again. If you're a woman at the well, well, yeah, he'll meet a Nicodemus because, well, Nicodemus could do so much, but who am I? This woman is, is defeated. She's been beaten up by life. She's just kind of dragging her pot to get water because that's what she does every day. But it's there that Christ entered in. And again, make this real to your life. Look at the day that Christ entered into your life. It was that day that he made known that it was for you that he thirsted. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11-12, through 12, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable amongst the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. That day of visitation is through your witness that they would receive Christ. That's the day that Christ visits them for salvation. And so as Christ thirsted for me, Christ thirsts for those out there who are unsaved, And just as Jesus was faithful to go forth and make disciples, bringing the word of God, it's the same thing that we need to do. How will they know, Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, how will they know without a preacher? And the fact of the matter is, they won't. Now, Jesus could have raised up rocks or spoken through a donkey, but in fact, he has chosen us. He has chosen us so that this world would know that God thirsts for them. Father, again, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your word, Lord, that just leads us into such rich places. Father, these areas that we can see the reality of you in our lives, how you have worked and how you continue to work in our lives. And so, Father, we just rejoice. We rejoice in our salvation. As we look at the Word of God, I see how my salvation, and I pray everybody else here does, how our salvation lines up with what the Word of God tells us and and what a blessing that that is. And so, Father, I pray not only would it be a blessing, I also pray that it would be a motivation that, Father, we would truly, well, Christ would be our all. And, Lord, as there's definitely people in all of our lives whom you thirst for, I pray, Father, that we would be faithful, bringing the word of God, that they may find refreshment through it. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand?